Welcome to a new day at White Oak. I want this ship to sail a long way into the future, as it has in the past. Let's hope it continues to do that very much. One of the things that makes our religion called Christianity unique or different as we compare it to all the other religions of the world, it makes it why we understand why we love it and why we want to be a part of it. When we compare it to Judaism, it is universal. When we compare it to Islam, it teaches love everyone, including our enemies. When we look at Hinduism or Buddhism, Christianity teaches us that doctrine and morality go together and they cannot ever be separated. Unlike atheism or agnosticism, it gives meaning to life and it gives us a hope for the life beyond the grave. Those religions, those beliefs cannot do that whatsoever. But at the same time, though, Christianity is a religion which cannot be practiced alone either. It is a religion that we realize and understand that we live our faith, we live our lives, we do the things we do as God's children in concert with one another. That is one of the things as we realize for a moment that the, those who, religions who have monks or those who we even call hermits who live among, as they, as they say, they live alone in some monastery on the top of a mountain somewhere, in the, as we'd say, in the middle of nowhere, saying simply by doing so that they're able to connect with God or they take a time of silence and never say a word, but this helps them commune with God has totally and completely missed the point of Christianity. We know of John Donne's famous poem, No Man is an Island. And when we think about that for a moment, that is very much true. When he talks about it, as Christians, we're not living on an island by ourselves. We're not as it were living this life and says, let me take care of me and I'm not worried about no one else. Let them take care of themselves. I'm going to live my life in isolation to keep me away from everything that's harmful and keep me away from everything that's sinful. Does not work. Christianity is truly a one another religion. It is that which belongs to one another. We are coupled, as it were. We are connected together. As we sit here this morning and worshiping God, as we go about our daily living, we are connected. And we want to use a phrase this morning that's found throughout the New Testament. And that is simply that phrase that we describe simply this, one another. We want to look at that this morning as we use that two-word phrase, one another, which is used basically throughout the New Testament to describe, as it were, our life as God's children with one another as we live life upon this earth. And we said a moment ago, we're not living this life alone. We live it with one another. So let's look at some things this morning when we talk about what it is to be one another. First of all, we remind ourselves from Ephesians 4 and 25 that we are members 
of one another. We often realize that by, as, as we look at the church and the many ways in which it is described to help us understand what it is like in its function, one of the things that is used to describe the church is simply what we call a body. We understand that. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, there the Apostle Paul says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things the church, which is his, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now we understand what he's talking about here because we look at ourselves at our body. We have a head and we have a body. We have the external parts which we can see either by looking at them or observe ourselves in the mirror. We have those internal parts of us within our bodies that help us function and carry out whether it be walking or breathing or whatever. That's what our body's made up of. And we realize each part of our physical body is important. No matter how little it may be or how great it may be, it has a function and it is needed. And we know that it's needed because sometimes when parts of our physical body go or go get sick or go awry, we know we don't feel right. Something is wrong. And we go to the doctor and find out what's wrong. I, I, need, I need something because this is going on or that's going on. If we understand that in the physical sense of a physical body, we truly understand it as a spiritual body. Paul, again writing to his brethren Rome in the 12th chapter, beginning with verse 4, said, For, uh, for as in one body we are many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Look at that. Paul simply says, we understand the physical body, let's apply that to the spiritual body of Jesus Christ. It has a head. It is Christ. We are members, many members, you know, as he said, individual. We all make up, we all comprise this great body called the body of Jesus Christ. And like the physical body, each member has his function. Each, each member has something which it's capable of doing. And it don't make any difference if all that you're able to do is call someone and says, we missed you. If all you can do is write a card and says, I heard you were sick and I want to let you know we're thinking about you. We're remembering you. Or if you have greater responsibilities, whatever it may be, the Lord says, I want you, I need you, and you're a part of my body no matter what. And here at White Oak, It'll make no difference if all you can do is make that phone call or you can do something even greater. God wants you in His army and this congregation needs you. We are members of one another. We need to understand that. That we're all needed. In the real world, a one-talent person, you know, get out of my sight. You can't do them for me. You only know this and I don't need you. You can't work for me. God says, I'll take you. I'll use you. I, can find, I know I can find something for you to do, a little how it may be, and no matter how small it is, God says, I will take note and remember. So we are members of one another. But also we have love one another as Christ has loved us. We're familiar with the fact that the command to love one another is found more than any other of the one another verse, uh, phrases found in all of the New Testament. It is found more than a dozen times. And those passages are John 13, verses 34 and 35, 
chapter 15, verses 12 and 17. We go to Romans 13 and verse 8. Or Ephesians 4 and verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 12. Or chapter 4 and verse 9. We go to 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3. 1 Peter 1, 22. Or 1 John chapter 3, verses 11, 12 and 23. Or chapter 4, verses 7, 11 and 12. All of these verses teach us one thing and emphasizes this fact. We are to love one another. As a congregation, we love one another. As a congregation, we are joyed with one another. As a congregation, we sorrow with one another. Why? Because we love each other. We love each other. Don't let anyone ever take that away from you. We love one another. John, as he grew older, some have said concerning him when he wasn't able even to preach much because his health wouldn't let him, still reminded his brethren, my little children, love one another. Never let go of that fact. Never let go of that one great thing. And why are we told to love one another? Because this is the identifying mark that distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Go back to John 13 again in the upper room. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you've loved one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now that commandment is not new. That commandment about loving one another is not new. Go to Leviticus 19 and verse 18 and you find it there where the Lord says not begrudge one another and so forth, but to love one another. Why? Because I am the Lord. But, John, but here Christ adds to that a statement because as I have loved you. As I have loved you. Here's the new quality. Here's the difference. As I have loved you, how has Christ loved us? The cross. The cross. And the blood that was shed there. There's the extra quality. That's the extra. He talked about as I have loved you. That's what makes that commandment new. Love one another as I have loved you. We are here today because we know for an absolute fact that God loves us. And those who are members of the body of Christ who've had their sins washed away and trying to walk that good life that John describes in his first chapter and first epistle, no, understand that. We know God loves us. So one of the characteristics we are to shed to the world is this. You won't know how God loves us here because we love you. Because we love one another. It is a quality in which we are to pass on to others as God has loved us. But we're also told in this one another to what we call to submit to one another. That is to help and love one another. 
In Ephesians 5.21, it simply says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another. What does that mean? Where does it begin? It begins when we look at 1 Peter 5 and verse 6. Christians are to what? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Notice in this we realize when we look at this thing, this thing called submitting to one another or obeying and helping one another, what it begins with, first of all, we submit ourselves unto God. We've done that when we've obeyed the gospel. When we became a child of God, one of the things that we did when we were in the battle, we sang from the day we rise up out of the new, that new life. What? God's going to guide my life. I submit my will to His. He will guide me from this day forward. He will lead me in the paths of righteousness. His word will be a light to my way. I will do what he said in the Sermon of Vow. Seek first what? The kingdom of God, as he told us. And all these things will be added. I know if I submit myself to him and put my faith and trust in him, knowing that he will guide me in the right way, I know that walking with others who are fellow Christians, we submit ourselves unto God and together we make a great force. Because we're holding each other up, we're submitting to one another, we're helping one another as we follow the God of heaven. What follows from that? We would say next in line would be the oldest institution God created. When we look at the fact that it tells us in Ephesians 5.21 that the wives are to submit, submit themselves to their husbands. In that statement, is Paul saying the wives are inferior? No. We know that's not the case. He's not saying they're superior? No. Because he didn't create Eve from Adam's head, that she'd be over him. She didn't create him from his feet, that he could walk on her. He created him from his side, that she'd walk with him. But the statement still is true. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband. To the Lord. God knows this is the best way, but doing so, we do it out of love for one another. We submit to that. Going in the further family, what is the children's? Oh, what is it? Obey the Lord, obey your parents, and the Lord for what? This is right. Again, the submission. That we have said to ourselves that we, as children, that we're going to be, that we're going to submit to our parents to their authority and they're going to, we want to, we're putting our faith and trust in them that they will guide us rightly. That they will lead us in the path that righteousness, that raise us up to know right and wrong and teach us the will of God. One another. But to do that, requires something that to some human beings is very hard to do. Listen to Peter. We'll back up to verse 5 this time. He said, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. What is that word I said was hard? The word humble ourselves. Why? We are too proud. (laughs) 
we can't do that. You know, I'm, I am somebody. I'm not going to submit myself to anybody. No one's going to tell me what this seems to be our mentality. But the Word of God says here to us to submit ourselves to one another, to humble ourselves to one another. Why? Because Peter says God will build up the humble. Where did Peter hear that when he wrote it? Well, you heard the Savior say in Matthew 23 and, 11, uh, 23 and 20, he said, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles, I mean, whoever exalts himself shall be, uh, uh, be abased, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. He understood it. What about Luke in the 14th chapter and verse 11 says the very same thing. He had heard that. What about the parable of the tax collector and the, and the uh, Pharisee in their prayers? What did Christ say? To the Pharisee, <laughs> he prayed to the Lord as if the Lord didn't know how great he was. He had to remind the Lord, look how great I am. Let me tell you all the great, wonderful things I've done. So in case the Lord had forgotten to write one down. Christ says the tax collector wouldn't even look to heaven to see himself as it were and says, be merciful to me a sinner. Be merciful to me. Help me to humble myself under you. Help me to walk the way you want me to walk on the face of this earth. What did Christ say? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts him shall be, shall be humble, but who humbles himself shall be exalted. Not only had he heard the Savior say this, he saw him use it in a parable to grasp understanding what he meant that we to humble ourselves on the mighty hand of God into one another. Ah, but they soon forgot, didn't they? In preparation for that last meal together in the upper room, what happens in the first few verses of John 13? They all go in that upper room, all waiting for someone else to humble themselves and to do a menial task of washing one another's feet. Waiting for someone else to do it. Waiting for someone else to carry out this lowly task. Who ended up doing it? And what did he say? Listen. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus taught us that in this one another religion that we are so greatly a part of. The love that we have. The submitting is to be part of that love to one another. Humble ourselves to help one another. To do that menial task. To demonstrate that love. Christ is simply saying if we were put in our slang of today, there's no big eyes and little U's. <laughs> we're all Christians. We're all one another. And we are to submit to one another to help as we walk this pathway together. But not only that, we're told part of these, another one of these one another ones is that we are to 
bear one another's burdens, and it describes so fulfilled the law of Christ from Galatians 1 and verse 2. Paul in that chapter speaks of two different kinds of burdens. In verses 1 and 2 he says this, that anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's look at that for a moment. What is Paul trying to tell us here? When he says that a brother is caught in a trespass, that doesn't mean that that person deliberately did what he was about to undertake. He was caught. It's like an animal caught in a trap. It was unintentional. It was unaware. He didn't realize until after he had already got caught in it what he had done. And Paul says to any brother who's caught in a trespass, that is unaware of what has happened until he realizes it's too late he's been caught in the trespass. What does he say? Humble yourself to one another and go after that brother and help them to return. Help one another to return. But he gives a warning. Be careful, lest you also be tempted. Paul said it to his brethren at Corinth in 10 and 12, what therefore, you know, uh, anyone thinks he can stand, take heed lest he fall? What was he saying? We can look at it this way. In the real world, when someone falls into a deep ditch, a, a ditch, and they hear him crying and people come run over to see what's going on and find him down there, they don't just jump in, do they? They look at where he's at, they look at the surroundings, and even though he's hurting and they know they need to rescue him, what did they do? Let's get a plan. Think it through. Why? If they don't, there's going to be what? Two to rescue, or maybe three. They plan it out to make sure. what Everything, everything is what they need to do a successful rescue the first time. Paul's warning is to us, if we find a brother who's caught in a trespass, who's sinned unaware, when you go after that, that's your intention, that one another, you want to help him, you want to return him. Paul warns you, be careful and plan because that sin he fell for might be the one that you're so easily entrapped in. And guess what? We'll be rescuing too. Be careful. But the admonition is still there. We are to help and one another. Keep watch. Watch. Help. And he says that burden he refers to as any sorrow, any weakness, any infirmity, any burden that that person is bearing that is hard. Let's be there and help them. He's bearing there. One another. One another. Why don't we're one another? Because we're willing to help one another. Because we care for one another. That's what he's trying to get across to us. Take care of ourselves. But the second burden, and verse 5, is a totally different word. And that is simply this. There are some burdens that no one can bear for us. There are some things which no one can do for us. We have to do them for ourselves. Others can help us. 
Others can encourage us. Others can try to hold our hand and get us through whatever it may be, but we have to do it ourselves. One thing is a fact. Others can encourage. Others can teach. Others can beg and plead. But only you can obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's your decision. No one cannot do it for you. No one can come forward and say, I'll take so-and-so's place and I'll be baptized for their sin. No, it cannot be done. We can encourage, we can beg, we can plead. But that is your decision. How did Paul tell his brethren at Philippi in chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What, Paul? Work out what now? Your own salvation with fear and trembling. But also only that is, each one of us are going to have to give account of ourselves to God. Others can help us when we fall. Others can help us try to bring us back. Others can plead and beg with us to be restored, to stop that whatever they're doing that is wrong. But we still have to do it ourselves. In Romans 14 and verse 12, as Paul brings that marvelous book to any, he reminds us, so each one of us will give account of himself to God. Or in 1 Corinthians 5 and 10, we must all appear before the judgment and seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We can beg, we can plead, we can cry, whatever it takes to get someone to come back. But that decision is yours alone. That burden, no one can bear for you. No one. They can help. They can guide. They can plead. They can beg. But that decision is yours. And yours alone. The old saying is this. No one will go to hell alone. But at the same time, it is also true that no one will go to heaven alone either. Why? We're not an island. We're not an island. We are one another. We will make it because of each other guiding us, each other helping us, each other's holding our hands, each guiding one another. Heaven can be ours because of that. You see, God designed His church around that concept. We see it from the very beginning. Twelve men stood up and preached that gospel for the first time. As a result, 3,000 individual people responded to that invitation. They obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. As that chapter concludes, it reminds us, the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. How? The preaching of those 12, plus preaching of those some of those 3,000 that encouraged them to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. But still, it was their decision. 
It was their burden to bear. This morning, if you're not a child of God, this is the day. All things are ready. As the old invitation song used to say, all things are ready, come to the feast. The opportunity this morning to become a child of God is yours, to hear that precious gospel invitation as Christ stands in the way and says, Come unto me, all you labor heavily, and I will give you rest. Come this morning obeying that truth, believing that He is the Christ, Son of the living God, being, repenting of that way you've been living, confessing the fact that He is the Son of God, and buried in baptism. This morning you rise from that a new, a new creature, a new creation. This congregation will love you, embrace you, welcome you as a part of it on this day when you become a child of God. But if you are a child of His who strayed from that truth, who once walked in it but realized you're no longer walking in that truth, whether you're called unaware or you deliberately know that you walked right into that which you knew was wrong. The Savior's still standing. He's still pleading. Come home. You're my child. Come home. Come with that repentant attitude. And God says, I will promise you, I will forgive. And most of all, He'll forevermore forget that as He blots it away with the blood of Christ. Think on these things while together we stand and while we sing.